You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone of Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. And today I'm joined by my co-host, David Wilson, who's our student pastor, and Bobby Harrell, who is our lead pastor. Together, they've been giving weekly sermon content on Sunday mornings in person and online at Cornerstone. And we've also been presenting this podcast every week to then supplement the content of First Corinthians as we get into our study. As you do your own personal study, we'd love to engage in the conversation with you. So as you have questions that come up, or if you have any feedback from something that we say in the podcast or in a sermon, we would love to hear that. If you would text us your questions, comments, and feedback to 817-809-3040. We'd love to take all of the best and most relevant questions and compile a response to them. As you see, we'll even do today as we study and rehash some of the content of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. Okay, so guys, what I want to do is I want to first start off with two of our listener questions. We get a bunch of these questions in, and like I mentioned every week, we try to take the very best and most applicable and widely reasonable questions, and we like to respond to those. So there's two questions that I want to ask before we really get into chapters 9 and 10. One of them is specific to the content from last week's podcast, and the other question is something that's very specific to current events that happen just in the world this week. So let me ask the first question. I'll kind of throw it to you guys for a response. This question says, thank you so much for the Cornerstone Conversations podcast on chapters seven and eight. Sex has been so distorted both outside the church and within it that it's good to hear a healthy perspective. My question is about sexual soul ties. Do you think a person who has sex outside of marriage, whether they are single or if there's infidelity in a marriage, entangles their soul in such a way that each encounter creates irreparable damage? The idea being that a soul will forever be fractured due to impurity. Wow. So we need to talk a little bit about what is a soul. Let's start there. And I want to just help the questioner ask the question in a better way. So let's separate soul for a minute and talk about Mm -hmm. that as an issue. And then really, I think what the questioner really wants to say is, if I have out of bounds sexual relations mm-hmm. that's that would encompass sure all kinds of things. all kinds yeah. of things out of bounds let's just use that terminology sexual relations with someone do i in some way through the act of sex connect my soul i'm going mm-hmm. to use it a little different my spiritual person mm-hmm. is it is am i somehow damaging forever is the implication right. here my spiritual person in a way maybe beyond forgiveness or redemption or something. So Right. And again, I think this is taking from really the end of chapter six, where it mm-hmm. says that these kind of relations result in the two becoming one flesh. Okay. So let's right? deal with soul first. David, you want to take a stab at soul? Yeah. So the word soul, when we get to the New Testament, it adds some new connotation because there are different words in Greek. But if we're going to go back to the way that Paul thinks about the word soul, He's borrowing or taking from his tradition, which is Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is nefesh. And really soul in Hebrew doesn't, it's not this immaterial, intrinsically eternal thing that exists kind of separate of who I am. 
Really what soul means is kind of the way that an airplane pilot might say it. There are 200 souls aboard today as we yeah. disembark to fly to wherever we're going. Right. See, that, that way of using soul is kind of how the Hebrews would have used the word soul. It means your entire person. You're, you're, the way you're packaged. Yes. Yeah, it is you your, are, your entity. You are, let me go back to Genesis for a mm, moment. Yes. And God formed him out of the dust of the earth. Yep. And he breathed into him the breath of life. That's right. And he became a soul living soul. That's right. And so a soul, and I was incorrectly taught this. Right. I was taught more of a tripartite mm-hmm. body, soul, and spirit. And, and really what we're saying is God gave you a physical body yep, and he put a living spirit within that physical body. And now those two are bound up together and they are one thing. Packaged together. That's right. That is a living That's right. soul. A living mm-hmm. soul. A living soul. It's a body with a living spirit in it connected yes. together. And you were created from the very beginning to be an embodied spirit. Spirit. That's right. You're a spirit in a body. That's right. And that's what you are. That's you. That's absolutely right. And so when you see in Genesis where they become one flesh, what we're really saying is that there is a unique connection in marriage where you are spiritually mm, tied is not quite the right word. There's a link. There's a link. There's a spiritual connection and a physical connection the way that it's always supposed to be. And you are committed to that person forever. So you might as well be one flesh, but that doesn't mean that there's some mystical or mysterious thing that happens wherein your soul is now, or sorry, your spirit is now imprinted forever with that person's stamp or or something like that to where you become unrecognizable as an individual person. Yeah. Words like soul mates are not really biblical words. That's kind of a pop culture terminology for falling in love with someone. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you take a situation that really no one would argue with. Let's say there's a, a widow who remarries, yeah. right? And has now had rightful and reasonable sexual relations with two married- Legitimate in God's yeah, eyes. Exactly. Yes. No one would look at that and say that, you know, the second one- Her was, soul is somehow connected to multiple male partners. Right, exactly. And now she becomes like this haunted house of spirits, you know, yeah. or God forbid. I mean, I, I've known people, good Christian people who- lost a second spouse right, and remarried or lost a third spouse and remarried. I don't find that as the teaching of the Bible. What Paul's point that he's trying to make mm-hmm. is you guys are saying there are no rules. Right. Because my body doesn't matter. It's only my spiritual thing that matters. Correct. So I, I can do whatever body, I want. The body is really in some ways beneath me. I'm yeah. so spiritual that I have transcended the things of the flesh. And let's remember that this open sexuality is directly tied in their culture, or let me say in their culture, is also used as an expression in idol worship. Mm-hmm. So in these communities like Ephesus and Corinth, this very open approach to sexuality with prostitutes, with temple workers, in the, and I'm not saying in the temple of Israel, but in the temple of Diana or yeah, Aphrodite yeah, right, or Bacchus, right, right. the these pagan idol temples that had sexual workers employed there and they had mistresses and some people were having relations with their slaves and some people, I mean, it was just, it's just so open. Paul's like, wow, you guys have to get this under control. There is an ethic that comes with being a born again Christian and this isn't it. And you are joining your body to prostitutes in your community. And, And it feels to me, the implications are, it's not hidden. It's not secret. It's out there. It is yeah. what everybody's doing. Right. And you're just crushing your testimony 
you claim to be a follower of Christ and you live exactly as the Corinthians do, don't you know that when you join your body to the prostitute, you become one flesh in the act? Now, here's his greater argument. He's argued now that collectively there are two places that the spirit of God has chosen to dwell Mm -hmm. The collective assembly of the congregation, you all collectively are the temple of God. And then later, a few chapters later, he begins to speak to the individual. What do do you not know you're bought with pride? You, your body is the temple of God. And this is the argument he's making. If you would view your body as the temple of God, you would not be pounding cheeseburgers. Oops. I mean, that's not what he said, is it? He's talking about prostitutes. Cheeseburgers and sugars is our sin. <laughs> I mean, we have our own issues. Yeah. Isn't that's what I'm just bringing out. Yeah. They didn't have a high view of their body in this way. Yeah. They didn't see it as God's temple. So joining it to a prostitute was no big deal. Right. Paul's apoplectic about it. He's yeah. like, if it's God's temple, in other words, if you viewed it as God's temple, how could you then join it to a prostitute? And let me just even add implications. A prostitute that is one in the house of a, like an Aphrodite. Would you not be then connecting the temple of God to the temple of idols? An argument he's also going to make in chapter number 11, when we get to the Lord's Supper, something that keeps recurring again about demons and the connection to idolatry, have a higher view of your body. They said the body doesn't matter. David, we've been arguing for weeks now that your body does matter. And Paul, this Sunday morning on the Resurrection Sunday is going to say it does matter because your body will be resurrected. Which is why one of the important ideas that comes out of this too is that your spirit is not irreparably harmed or beyond some sort of forgiveness in the wake of maybe sexual sin in in your past or whatever. Because the spirit of God is far greater, far mightier than any sin that we could ever commit. And God's grace and ability to heal us. And I don't mean repair our spirits as if they're broken that way. I just mean heal us in the sense of offering us grace and his own righteousness. So that when we get to this resurrection moment, we are able to be indwelt with this brand new spirit and this brand new body that then are pictures of what we were always supposed to be in the first place. So I don't hate the word soul ties, particularly because it, you know, it kind of for our day, for our vernacular, it it makes us understand something. I don't hate the word soul ties in the sense that there is something our hearts are bound together. There is something together. There is something distinct about, you know, a sexual relationship. Sure. But that's why it's supposed to be well, confined that's, that's to gravity of it. But, but then the to gravity. go on and to say that yes. that a particular sin of any yes. kind, let, any kind of sin, let's say one sin in particular, to say that that has soul implications yes. in, in a way that then releases the equity of unrighteousness of all right. sin. Right. Right. It's not quite a consistent reading of God's right. grace or his mercy upon us as sinners. As we sin, there is no one sin that makes us more intrinsically less sold. Paul said it actually in the opposite. He said, the sins that you commit are outside the body Mm -hmm. typically. Right. But on this particular issue of immorality, this incorrect ethic of sexuality that you're practicing, don't you know that you're actually harming your body? Mm Right. Not not the spiritual person or whatever, but it's a sin against your own body is the point he's making. And it's tied to, it's all again, tied to an incorrect view of your body as the temple of God Mm -hmm. and you as an icon, an image of the living God. 
And Jesus will answer a question similar to this, that the Pharisees level at him. A woman gets married to one husband, he dies. Mm-hmm. You, you even same, kind of started scenario. bringing this yes. up. And Jesus' answer to them is like, there will be no marriage in the resurrection. Yeah. What are you guys even talking about right now? Yeah. There, there won't because we want to elevate this, this sexual sin or this sexual relationship to more than it is. And Jesus is saying, that's not even going to be a feature in resurrection bodies. It doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of special relationship between maybe you and your wife in the resurrection or whatever, or you and your husband in the resurrection. The, the, who's, who's to say? We don't know, but there won't be sexual relationships. I'd love to answer it this way. God's already thought all of that out. <laughs> yeah. We are not clued into the scriptures really yeah. about all of the nuances mm-hmm. of how those relationships play out in the future. Right. Yeah. But we have to be, if you just look at the miracle of the gospel, and your own salvation and the resurrection of Christ and the promised resurrection. Do you not start getting the understanding that God has thought this out? Right. And he is, it's insulting to say he's a genius. He's, he, he, he's so <laughs> above that, above all of this, <laughs> yeah. that he has thought out what we're going to yeah. do with wives and ex-wives and, and uh, stepchildren and relationships and marriage and, and even immorality that we were yeah. involved in before or after our salvation and illegitimate kids. And how are we going to deal with all these relationships in heaven? I just want everybody just to <sighs> yoga yeah. breath from the belly right yeah. now. Right. God has worked all of this out somehow. And he's going to redeem it all. Yeah. It, when it's all under the blood. That's right. And, and this is why you trust Christ and mm-hmm. follow him and know that he is going. Here's the promise. He's going to restore everything as it should have always been from the beginning. Yes. So whatever that Eden looks like, we're going to be content with that. We are going back to that yeah, and it's yeah. going to be glorious and you don't have to worry about that. Right. So with restoration and redemption in mind, mm-hmm. do we believe that any kind of sexual immorality outside of the balance of marriage, you believe that that creates irreparable damage to the soul? No, 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 no. no. Okay. I Paul, think it Paul can have say, lasting effects on oh, your sure. psyche and your person right now. Yeah. And I think that's really what that See, idea of soul ties me. You, you, you almost know what feel I mean? like you're getting set up with the question right. to not want to answer it so simply. Yeah. But the short answer is no. no. But the yeah. longer answer is it's really not that simple of a question because sex outside of God's boundaries will leave you, as you said, David, scarred. Yeah. It'll yeah. leave you with incredible emotional, mental baggage yeah. that you have to carry, relational baggage, you have to carry forward into any future relationships. Right. And it incredibly complicates our life. So it's not like, oh, there's no consequences. Right. There are consequences. But it's not consequential beyond the redemption yes. of God's correct. grace. That's correct. Exactly that right. is correct. That is correct. Okay. So let me move on to the next question before we really get into chapters nine and 10. And this one, again, it's, it kind of has to do with this last week, really, David, your sermon on Sunday, mm-hmm. that in conjunction with some current events, the question says this, with the sermon this past week, referencing not eating sacrificed food in the temple because of our example to the lost world, etc. What about the Nike shoe with a drop of blood in them or wearing or supporting the Nike brand if they don't get rid of them? Well, there's a sort of equivalence implied by the question that you're, you're making sure. an, a, the Nike issue and maybe a Christians need to boycott Nike. Now you're making an equivalence that that's what we should do based on this new Testament text that says, don't, eat meat in the idol temple because you're going to pull people back into idolatry. Yeah. I think we understand the heart of the question, but I think it is still useful to mention that these aren't actually Nike sponsored or endorsed shoes. So I think we should pull that thread a little bit and explain that. Right. So just for clarity's sake, the shoe that is in question here is an adaptation of a previously marketed and sold Nike shoe. 
It was taken, customized, then resold. Not by Nike. Not by Nike. In fact, Nike is actually in the process of suing the company that redesigned the, and is reselling the yeah. shoe. So let's just take Nike off the table for, you know, give them a little bit of They're grace. They're not involved in this. This isn't way. really a Nike issue, but it doesn't change the heart of the question, which says, should I associate with these brands that maybe align themselves with immoral things? Can I ask a ridiculous question? Sure. Does a lost person when they see a shopping at Walmart who probably supports organizations that, you know, may be problematic to Christianity in general. If a lost person sees you shopping at Walmart, do they bring up that as a question of conscience? Well, you shopping at Walmart, David, you I must, thought you were a Christian. You, you must be pro-abortion or you must be, exactly. you know, anti-God or. And, and nobody does that because nobody is thinking about it that way. And that is what Paul is setting up in the verses 24 through 26. He's right. saying, if an unbeliever brings this up as a matter of conscience that you as a Christian should be worried about because this is idle meat, then you should not respond in this eat. way. Right. Because if we were going to be consistent on this kind of line of thought, we'd have to boycott everything. everything. Period. Everything is problematic at some level yeah. for us. Every Christian will have to go pull your 401k out of mutual funds because you are already, you not only give your business to companies, you own, you are a partial owner when you own stock and mutual funds of these companies. Yeah. So what Pepsi and Coke and, and Target, you know, Starbucks, Apple, all the things, Apple yeah. Starbucks, all, especially now that's great. Cause Apple and Starbucks would be the type sure. of company that would be very, maybe left leaning sure. on, on some issues. Probably most Christians, if they have retirement investments, they are in those companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're in the S&P 500 or whatever. You own them. You yeah. own You're those companies. You're one of the largest 500 companies. So when yeah. you point the finger and say, you know, this company, this and this company, that, sure. well, you own a piece of it. Yeah. And so what Paul's point was in these chapters is, I did not tell you to separate yourself from the world. Yeah. Because uh, uh, from the idolaters of this world, you would have to leave, have to leave. planet Earth and go live on Mars. Which is yeah. obviously an unreasonable expectation. Correct. And what Paul does is he takes arguments to their absurd extreme. Yeah, conclusion, their logical yeah. conclusion there. Just to show yes. you can't live this way. And that is the, the larger point here that Paul really is trying. He's trying to nuance his argument here to not give us a hard and fast rule about what we can and can't support. If an unbeliever has a problem with it, then there's the issue. But it seems to me that this is an ostensible on its face. This has to do with idolatry, not about which brands you support or don't support, because we we aren't we don't have an issue with worshiping Nike or worshiping That's Walmart. Correct. It's not an equivalent. You can't make this right. the same kind of equivalence. Right. However, I would suggest not buying the Satan shoes. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think any Christian who strolls in Sunday in their Satan shoes or strolls to the high school and down the hall and claims to be a Christian and wearing their pentagram laden <laughs> Nike knockoffs now, I think is in for some ridicule, yep. both from the Christian community and from the unsaved community. Like, what, what are you trying to make? What statement are you trying to make here? Right. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with Nike per se. That has everything to do with the particular symbolism that directly relates to Satan. Correct. And, and so t tell me about, because I'm a little detached from this, you guys know I'm this has lost me a little bit here, but I understand the principles, but not, I don't know the person involved in this. Is this a Satanist or is it a, is it a sports figure or who has done this? He's a hip hop artist. There's a hip hop artist who's become very popular in the last couple of years. And he, I think he's trying to do a, it's a marketing ploy. I would say. I, I think there's definitely elements of that. It is an attention grabbing yes. ploy. 
And I think what he's trying to say, because he's a homosexual artist, I think really what he's trying to do is he's trying to actually say something in a kind of a meta way by by using this as an example. He's saying against Christianity. Yes, I've been told for so long that I'm going to hell because I am homosexual and nobody's shown me grace or love. And so here's my response to that. Not that he's an occultist, not that he's a Satanist. I think he's just a secular artist who's trying to make a provocative song to make some money. Okay, well, we'll leave that right there then. And so I think the answer is Christians look foolish and probably aren't following scripture when they try to boycott something like this. I've seen Christians try to boycott different things. I think this is probably the wrong response. This is not what Paul's talking about at all. Yeah. And I think boycotts work best when we're talking about like justice issues, like things that actually relate to real people's lives. This Nike shoe, this is silly. Just doesn't relate to people's lives. Like, like Martin Luther King Jr. boycotted, you know, the buses, and yeah. Rosa Parks did the same. Yeah. Like, it, but that had actual implications for real people's lives, where they were. It was a justice issue. That's where things like that actually make sense to do. Boycotting just to be loud. I don't know yeah. that that really accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. And it certainly doesn't show graciousness from a Christian's standpoint to the wider world. And again, they don't view it as <laughs> the wider world doesn't look in at Christianity and say, you own a Nike. Well, you must not really be. A you Christian. must be a Satanist. Right. right. Well, and I've never seen a corporate boycott in this way. You know, it, one happened with Target a few mm. years ago One happened with Starbucks a few years ago. These kind of corporate boycotts by Christians because the corporations weren't aligned with the Christian standard that we, you know, expect them to be. I've never seen anyone change their mind towards the faith of the gospel Absolutely. because of these boycotts. Right. Absolutely. There's kind of an exile mindset that comes from the, you know, Babylonian exile in the Old Testament. And then Peter calls us exiles in the New Testament. So when you're saying exile mindset, are you saying this as something Christians should have or should not have? Uh, should have. We should adopt what Peter calls the Christians in his particular context when he's writing Second Peter. He says, to the exiles where you live. Babylon hasn't been a, a nation state for like five, well, maybe more than 500 years, a thousand years, uh, 600, 600, 700 years, something like that at that point when Peter's writing. What is his point then? His point is that you need, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. You're not in a culture that aligns with godly principles let where me, you're Let at. me try to bring that up then. So we're in post-Christian America. That's right. Which means that America that you live in right now is not your granddaddy's America. That's right. And you need to adopt a different mindset than granddaddy. And this is not your grandpa's church. Yep. Because we live in a different cultural context right now. And the church is going to have to adapt some things. Yep. Christians are going to have to have a different mindset. Yep. Because we've had a cultural shift well, and it's not unique to us no. is what you're saying. That's a, because if you look back at the exilic examples of like Daniel and his three friends who get thrown in the furnace, you know, his three friends and Daniel gets thrown in a lion's den and all those things happen to them. That's because they couldn't remain completely loyal to Babylon in certain moments. But we see a lot of examples and pictures of them. We see Daniel. He's the head president of the nation. And he's, and he's benefiting, helping Jeremiah, the prophet says, plant vineyards, yeah, if, make Jer homes. Jer Jeremiah says, if, if, if someone claims to be a prophet. That's right. And tells you. You're leaving tomorrow. Yeah, we are not, we're not of that. We're not going to be here. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, we're you going, we're going that. to heaven soon, or we're going to That's Jerusalem right. soon, or That's we're, right. <laughs> then he is a false prophet. That's right. Do not listen to him. Yeah. Instead, he says. Seek the peace of your city. Seek the peace where you be live. Be a good citizen. Yes. And Daniel is a clear example of that. He's clearly supporting the government in which he was brought 
into exile. Using his skills and talents That's right. to lead the nation of Babylon and Medo-Persia later. Yet... There are moments where he has to be subversive. And defies his own and, government. That's right. Of be, which he's the president. Because it goes it goes against some of the and very let's give them the clear. You shall not pray. That's right. What does he do? He gets he, on his knees, opens the window and prays. That's right. In his own home. And he still he still does it. He tries to be, I think, safe. And then some guys sneak up and see him. And that's when he gets thrown in the lion's den. Yeah. You know, and, and the three friends are told to bow down to this big idol that you know Nebuchadnezzar right. makes. It crossed the line now. It crossed the line because... One of the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other gods Ooh, before me. Which is really setting up 9 and 10 again, this yes. God's hot button idolatry. And they get thrown into the furnace because they re they resist in this moment. And so I, I think as Christians, we need to adopt an exilic mindset where there are things that we can be loyal to. There are times to be loyal and time times to, to resist. resist. That's, that's exactly right. And we have to use discernment self-control, wisdom, led by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. To, Just to, what Paul's talking about, even in chapters nine and 10, right. which those are the recurring themes. Yep. Again, we want hard and fast rules. God's not giving us hard and fast rules. Right. He gave us the Bible. He wants us to have not the one we want. That's right. That just says, Oh, you know, in case of blood laced Nikes, turn to chapter 37 of third Thessalonians, and I'll show you what to do. Every scenario cannot be covered by the Bible. Yeah. So you have principles that you are to apply freshly yep. and with wisdom in your own context. And right. we'll see that again in chapters nine and 10 and, and forward here. So let's get into chapters nine and 10 then, because there's some really great content here. Chapter nine opens up with kind of a defense of Paul's apostleship. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of want to ask, why is he being so defensive? Well, obviously they've attacked his apostleship and I think you'll see it. I really don't want to get too far ahead because it's going to come out more and more in the coming chapters. I think when we podcast chapter 15, I'll be able to maybe show you some stark examples of really offensive behavior mm -hmm. that they were using towards the apostle Paul. It had to do, it, it almost feels like a junior high moment when you're reading this. I, I'm suddenly back in junior high where everybody's calling everybody names and yeah and insults and shaming and based on appearance and yeah. you know we're all going through awkward stages of growth and everybody's you know you got the three or four more mature specimens and and nobody can live up to that standard and everybody <laughs> else is either a runt or you know four eyes or sure. brace face or who knows what or all you of know, them or yeah. all the are all packaged in one horror of horrors and and it's a bunch of name calling and shaming and belittling and they've just think, Paul led these people to Christ, formed them into a church. Gave, loves them. Loves them as a father loves his children very clearly. Will not give up on them. He yeah. will not give up on them. Yeah. And that's evidenced by yet another book called Second Corinthians that, right. that's out there somewhere in the future, maybe for us to study as a church. He will not give up on them. Yet they're insulting him. And so, again, we go back to why do we call this zero Corinthians? Because there's correspondence that's gone back and forth. And some of it evidently has been vicious yeah. Yeah. and hateful. Very personal. Very personal. And, and that's and the can, issue. You can hear how personally Paul yeah. is taking this. Yeah. This is one thing that's important to read scripture as though it's an actual person writing it. Yeah. Because when you read it in an actual voice, it says something like, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? You just hear how personally he's taking these yeah. attacks. Well, and if you just keep following with what you're reading, he, he goes on to say, even though I may not be apostle to some people, surely you guys are going to consider me. Surely you would consider me apostle. I led you 
to Christ. I have begotten you with the gospel. You know, I could see where some people might claim, uh, you're not my apostle because I don't know them and they don't know me and there's no relationship. Right. And God, what apostle means sent one yeah. and maybe I wasn't sent to them. And so they might feel that way. But how could you guys feel that way? I didn't want to come to Europe. I wanted to go to Asia. I wanted to go to my own Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And God forbade me to go and made me come to Europe. I'm here by divine call. And I am surely sent by Almighty God, commissioned to come to Corinth and give you the gospel. How can you say I'm not a sent one? Surely I am to you because I, I brought you the gospel. He just, you can just hear the emotion in Paul's language as he's writing these opening verses of chapter nine. And then he goes on to, he says, this is my defense. He goes on yep. to defend his apostleship and what he's about to articulate in those opening chapters that, that you spoke on Sunday is rights. Mm -hmm. I have rights. Yeah, that, that, that is really his big conversation all throughout chapter nine is that he's saying, I do have all these rights, but I haven't used them. I'm not using them on purpose because I don't want there to be any barrier to the gospel for you or anybody else to hear. And so kind of a recurring theme is freedom means not using all of your rights all of the time. And that is what true freedom means. Again, what the Corinthians wanted was autonomy. They, they wanted to go back to what Adam and Eve were all about, which is I get to define good and evil on my own terms. I don't have, I'm beholden to nobody. Nobody no can tell me what to do at all. And that's not the freedom that Paul envisions for these Christians living in their context. And while our context is very different than theirs, especially on the idolatry issue, right. the attitude is very American. Yeah. I feel when you say oh, that yeah. I can do what I want to, I don't want to be accountable to the church. I don't want elders making spiritual decisions. I don't want to make a commitment to a church. We see this a lot in America where people are sermon samplers or church hoppers or, mm -hmm. you know, sure. uh, they never commit to a body and therefore they are relegated to spiritual infancy because they will not submit to any accountability within God's structure. Th listen, the church is not invented by us, right? This is Christ's church and this was his model. And we are following his model and he set it up because we needed to make commitments. We need authority in our life. We need boundaries. Yeah. It's not stifling. It's not repressive. And that is the sign of maturity is someone who can exist within boundaries, within healthy boundaries and live freely within that. that that's what Paul's explaining because th this is his aside in between chapters eight and nine where he's talking about freedom and rights and how, how you do that well in your context. His aside here is to say, you need to follow my example, which is a mature believer in Christ's example. Mm -hmm. I don't assert my rights all the time. And that is what makes me a mature Christian. Well, and he goes on in, in the first few verses of chapter nine, don't I have the right to do these things? Yeah. Don't I have the right to have a wife? Or don't I have the right to eat and drink and do all these things? Of course. Of course. But I don't exercise those rights. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the chapter, I think it's verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself mm -hmm. a slave to everyone. Yeah. And here's his motive, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews, to those who are under the law, became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law, to those as not having the law, became as one not having the law. <laughs> Omitting the parenthetical statements, so as to win those not having the law. Yeah. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. Here's my point. I have become all things to all people that I might by all possible means save 
some, and this I do for the gospel's sake. Now, that doesn't make Paul wishy-washy. It makes him a great parent. You know, I, I, I assume that you, Pastor, since you've done the parenting thing longer than Jeremy or, <laughs> or I have, yeah. that you've worn many different hats. I'll be a hunter and hunt with Jack if that will build a relationship with him. Or a, co- a sports coach or a, yeah. you know, or, or a or math tutor. Absolutely. Or, a, yeah, or, or I'll talk about the things with Andrew that really, you know. The point is, if you love someone, you'll do whatever's required. Is. To build the relationship and to to move them into maturity. And that's what Paul's doing here with the Corinthians. Well, you also not do the things. That's right. So, you know, my my son asked me for dessert after dinner last night. I tell him, no, it's too late for dessert. And so I'm not going to turn around and go into the freezer and get myself a popsicle, right? <laughs> and because, eat it right in front of you. Right. Because like for, cruelty. for the better example, because yeah. I know it's best for him, I'm, I, I am perfectly capable of getting my own dessert. And you Thank have the you. right. And I have the right. I it's your it. house. It's you my house, it. right? But I'm not going to yeah. because it's something that I'm trying to prove to him as an example. And that is the sign of maturity. If you were to do that, how immature of a parent would you be? Right. Just to say so to your son that I get to do whatever I want in any boo-boo. And that's how the Corinthians are living right now. Well, honestly, when you put it in this kind of (laughs) metaphor, it just sounds so ridiculous and silly and, you know, immature. And you can see why Paul's so fired up. Yeah, because it's the same exact kind of tone. It is. He takes then this idea of they wanted to exercise all of their rights all the time. Mm -hmm. And I could maybe be less generous. They want to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. And Paul rolls that into what we call chapter 10. Now, remember in the original letter he wrote, there's obviously no, yeah, there are no chapters. Yeah. He just starts a new paragraph to build the idea, which to us is then chapter 10. And when he opens chapter 10, he starts talking about other people in history who lived with the same attitude that the Corinthians are now living. Right. And he says, namely, my own people, my Jewish people, yeah. I know their stories very well. Let me tell you some of them. Yeah. And he starts talking about how his Jewish ancestors lived with the we want to do whatever we want to do attitude. And it also was connected to a return to idolatry. Mm -hmm. Again, I love pausing and saying this as often as possible. If there's one thing that's God's hot button, it is idolatry. And when the children of Israel wanted to murmur and complain about, again, see the similar application here. Mm -hmm. The children of Israel are complaining against Moses' leadership. Moses is called by God and doing the best he can to lead them to freedom. Yeah. It's exactly what Paul's doing in Corinth, called by God, sent there to lead them into a relationship with Christ, and they're fighting him all the way. Yeah. Very similar, and I understand why Paul might go here because the application is really a yeah. seamless little transition here, but Paul begins to talk about his own we call his brothers and sisters in Jews, he, mm-hmm. his fellow Jewish ancestors, how they murmured against Moses, how they griped against Moses, how they didn't like his leadership style. And, and, and yet in a manner, they were all baptized as they went through the yep. Red Sea. Yep. They all drank from the spiritual rock, you know, the rock yep. that gave water in the wilderness. They all ate that spiritual food we call manna that yep. was fresh on the ground every morning. In other words, they ate some spiritual food, they drank some spiritual drink, and they were baptized. It, it, you know, he's just making this nice little episode, just like you Corinthians. Yep. And they griped and complained and resisted God's leader and always wanted to go back into idolatry. And I think you use the expression Sunday, it is this kind of behavior that often causes God to open the ground <laughs> yeah, and swallow, some and swallow <laughs> thousands of people alive. Yeah. That's how against idolatry God is. Yeah. 
And so the, the point is, though, that they wanted to do what they wanted. They wanted mm. to have, we are free and we can do whatever we want to do. And I guess Paul's big point as he opens chapter 10 is, no, you misunderstand. That's not freedom. Yeah. That's autonomy. That's, yeah, that's extreme position. That's just individualism yeah. in its extreme yeah. be, being applied. And then he cycles back in chapter 10 now with a fresh application to mm. idle meat eating in the temple and this kind of thing from somewhere around chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 10 onward. This is a recurring conversation. Yeah. But again, if you really understand what's happening in first Corinthians, it appears that there's several subplots that are continually recurring under the big heading of what does it mean to be spiritual? That's right. And there's this tension with trying to overthrow the gospel here. There's this, we think we're spiritual because of certain gifts, which we'll get to in really in, in chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And we are, uh, uh, the, the flesh doesn't matter. And since it doesn't matter, we do whatever we want to in the flesh. That's right. And Paul's like, it does matter. Yeah. You're not allowed to do whatever you want to do. Again, that is not biblical freedom. That is not what it means to, to, to be free in Christ. And that's certainly not Jesus' example, who didn't come to assert his own rights. Right. And if you look at some of other Paul's other writings, like in Philippians chapter two, Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death and death on the cross. And this is what Paul wants for the Corinthians is to stop asserting their rights. Stop asserting. Yes, we know you can eat the meat. We know that an idol is nothing. Yeah, we're all on the same page about that. However, you're crossing a line and leading people back into things that they should not be led into. Here's where Paul brings demons back into the conversation. Paul reestablishes yes the idol is nothing yeah and yes meat is nothing right you know it's inconsequential what you want to eat yeah an idol's a rock or just a statue made yeah. by human hands it it's, is and no real deity everything is god's right yeah. and, and everything belongs. So, so those things are nothing but here's right. the big deal i want to talk about demons and he'll cycle back to the demonic connection which exists behind idolatry. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the demons that are found actually in verses 19 through 21, because there's a question that came in this week that deals with that. So let me read verses 19 through 21, and then I'll ask the question, because I think it'll set you up really nicely for what you're saying now. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So then there's a question that we got into our text line this week. It says, in reference to this section, Paul speaks of participating with demons. I know he's not speaking directly to the topic, but I'm asking because it does beg the question, can believers be demon-possessed? And again, when when you get a question like this question, which is a great question, I have to be very careful with the wording. So now demon possession is a very Americanism Mm. or maybe, maybe even Europeans use this, but it's a very modern way to express a lot of our horror shows today are really depictions of demon possession, haunted houses and to yeah. me, the creepiest of all are little kids that are demon possessed and, right. you know, little yeah, children of the are, corn or little, yeah. little, whatever. Just, it's interesting how, yeah. how demonic nature and all these things yeah. are so prevalent in our entertainment. It's mm-hmm. because we have a fascination towards these things. Yeah. And in some countries they don't, they don't fast, they, they wouldn't use this as entertainment. 
because it's all too much a reality mm-hmm. in their community. Yeah. They'd be horrified that it's something we watch for entertainment. Right. And, and I'm not, if, you know, if this is your thing, whatever, whatever. Uh, you know, again, I'm not calling for a ban on <laughs> horror, or, you know, Dracula, yeah. but <laughs> a boycott. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. It just, what I'm saying is I can only speak for me as an individual in this moment. It creeps me out when I'm watching a show and all of a sudden people are demon possessed and, and the reason it creeps me out, because to me, it's not a show. It's a reality you've witnessed. Yeah. It's something you've dealt with. It's something that you've seen people's lives totally in bondage to demon possession. So let me use the word demon possession for a minute to use possession. You know, like in, in English, if you put apostrophe S on a word, you know, that's David's journal. Apostrophe S means it belongs to you. You are you, you possess it. It is your possession. So I, I would use this subtlety. Christians have been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Let's use Paul's language from previous chapters. What? Don't you know your body is the temple of God? That's right. You're not your own. Yeah. You're bought with a price. So I would say this, a Christian cannot be Satan's possession. Yeah. Not the Satan or the, the demons. Mm-hmm. You are owned by God. You have been yeah. redeemed. Yeah, bought with a price. Bought with yeah. a price. And the last thing that will ultimately be redeemed, this is why we speak of a future aspect of salvation, mm-hmm. is your body and planet Earth. Yeah. And But you have the guarantee of it because of Christ's resurrection. But you're bought with a price and you're redeemed. And what is Ephesians 1.13? You're sealed mm-hmm. with the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. of promise until yep. the day of redemption. And there is implication there that you're, you're kept safe. You're right. preserved. Uh, you know, I'm old school. I remember my grandmother would pick vegetables and stuff on the farm and would can them. And so for our modern listeners, hmm. that means not aluminum cans or steel cans. It means glass jars. Yeah. She would put them in a pressure cooker called a canner and they would pressure cook them. And then they're incredibly hot. You have to lift them out of the pressure cooker and set them on the kitchen cabinet on a big towel. These are vivid memories from my childhood. Hmm. And as those jars cool, the cooling action sucks the lid down tight and you can almost hear them seal as they cool. And then they're preserved. You can come in months later and sometimes maybe even a year, years later, I've seen my grandmother pull jelly jars and stuff off the pantry and there's dust all over the jar. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die of some kind of tomain poisoning when we eat this. And and sure enough, that the lid, the little ring around the jar would yep. be, you know, it's like four grown men in the kitchen trying to twist the lid off. It's, right. it's you know, but finally hot water and a, it comes off and, and the contents inside are as delicious as the day they were put inside because they've been preserved. Yeah. And in a sense, this is exactly what Ephesians is saying. The Holy Spirit has sealed you and preserved you. You are safe. You are in a sense, incorruptible, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're not going to, it's why we believe in the eternal security of the believer. That's right. Your spirit is kept safe. Your, God's you, love is more powerful yeah. than even death in the grave. Yeah. And like, we know that from Psalm, we know that clearly from what yeah. the new Testament teaches. Yeah. So you are preserved, saved, sealed, however yeah. you want to say that. So Satan can't own you, David. That's right. That's what we're, we're saying. Yeah. But I think you might could be afflicted in some, I mean, in other words, I think we can oh, be attacked. We can be harassed I mean, and right. attacked. I, I, I hate to get into too much of a semantics game, but you hear the difference between demonic possession versus oppression, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That That's a believer awesome. cannot be possessed by sure. a demon or by Satan. 
but we can certainly be oppressed. And Paul, I think I think Paul, you were you were going to bring this example up that Paul himself was oppressed. Uh, it, there was a messenger of Satan given to buffet me. I mean, he talks about. I, I mean, Satan, and I don't want to say the Satan, uh, yeah, Satan yeah. but dark forces, evil sure, forces, sure. satanic forces attack me. Yeah. A- and I want to say not just Paul. I think they attack believers. Absolutely. Who, especially those believers who are, let me use these kind of like out on the front lines. Sure. Uh, which is anybody trying to make disciples spread the gospel. Yep. You know, do, do the work of an apostle, which is to do pioneering work in a hostile environment. And even now, as our culture turns post-Christian, mm. it just means right here at home doing uh, the, the work that God's called us to do, share the gospel and make disciples, you're going to come up against forces of evil and they're going to go against you. Now, that's n- clearly not what the questioner is asking, though. They're asking, can I, like we see on a horror show, be right. demon-possessed? Right. And, you know, Jeremy, of the three of us, you're the most recent person to cast a demon out of someone <laughs> in a foreign country. And it's a scary experience yeah it's a humbling experience right your prayer life will get instantaneously go from zero to a hundred on that experience in particular the person who was demon possessed was most certainly not a believer Mm. but i've never felt more spiritually attacked than in that Mm. moment dealing with the demon possessed you were squared off in battle right for that woman right and it was a battle of whether Satan was going to possess her body yeah. or her spirit. Or however you want to say, spiritually, spiritually, somehow get in her. Yeah. He was in her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or whether the spirit of God was going to take control of her life. Right. And so, obviously, I've, I am secure in my relationship with the Lord. That's not, not a question. I was in no way possessed in that moment. But I've certainly felt the attack and the oppression of a demon in that moment right and so as far as believers being possessed if it's just me answering i would say no i i don't believe that that's the case but we certainly feel the effects and the yeah. oppression of demons i would agree with you and, and i would say we don't have biblical precedent to say and in the absence of biblical precedent i would say no we, we have no story here of and I feel like you would have a story if it yeah. were if it were a viable option. I feel like, you know, certainly in this decade or two or, or really longer after the resurrection, you know, some of these things are uh, Paul's right. What first Corinthians 55 AD. Yeah. Pretty soon after, yeah. you know, you're 20 years yeah. after the resurrection or longer. But, but you see what I'm saying? It's, yeah. th- there's enough time in 20 years to have experienced something like this if it was real to say, yeah, yeah. about, you know, Sally, who we all know is a believer and clearly, you know, got herself in a situation where she was demon possessed and we were able to cast the demon. She's doing fine now, but there's no stories like this in the Bible. Right. So in the absence of, I mean, absolutely zero stories through the book of Acts and the epistles of demon possession of believers. Right. I would say we would be cautiously Weary. safe to say, yeah, I don't think that's a thing. I feel like the sealing and mm-hmm. protection of the, of the Holy Spirit's yeah. presence in your life is keeping you safe well that's a fair point if you are indwelled by the spirit of god then it's hard to imagine a reality where his spirit is able to succumb to the spirit of a demon could be ousted by a demonic spirit where we have clear pictures where the demons are making people bow down at jesus feet and say don't cast us out son of god what are you going to do to us kind of stuff Right. right like very clearly demonic spirits have to obey what god says right so and 
Then the apostles whom Jesus commissioned, remember, they marveled. We have power to cast out demons. Right. And he said, well, you know, don't, don't get big headed now. Just marvel <laughs> that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, yeah. you know, but they clearly had the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe that would extend to us as Christians living right now, you know, that we would have the authority to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. So, you know, if you think you're dealing with that, then I'd seek some counsel and, and proceed, you know, but <laughs> to be clear, I don't think our listener is dealing with it. No. And what I want to say is the listener makes the bigger point though. Now leads us or leads me to make the bigger point about that. Here's what Paul is actually saying. He didn't say, don't go down to the temple of idols because I'm afraid you're going to get demon possessed. Right. Mm-hmm. He said, what I want you to recognize is the idol is nothing and the meat is nothing. However, those just as you all, the believers, are one of the places God has chosen to put his spirit, down there at the temple of idols is the place where Satan has chosen to put his spirits. Mm-hmm. And they are demonic. They are devils. They are unclean. They, they, you know, they are evil spirits and they are represented by that temple. And y'all as an assembly represent my temple. That's right. And I don't want there to be any confusion about the mixing of temples here. He didn't say, don't go down there and get demon possessed. Yeah. What he said is it kind of goes back to the prostitute argument he's making. Can you take the temple of God and join it to the temple of the Satan or the temple of devils. Do you not see a problem with this? Okay. Now let's use a different metaphor. You are the temple of God. Don't go down to the temple of idols. You you don't fit there. No. And, and this, I think it really ties back to the beginning of chapter 10. The Israelites did all these things with Moses. They were participants with Moses, yet they revealed their true heart by wanting to participate with idolatry back in Egypt. And so now he's drawing the point to where they are in Corinth and saying, you are participating in the Lord's supper, maybe not the manna from heaven. You are baptized in full immersion with, with water, not, you know, not sort of similar to what Moses was with the Red Sea. He's drawing this big tie to them. And he's saying, you should not be like the Israelites who wanted to continually go back and participate with the demonic things and with idolatry. That's really the the overarching point. And, And he makes his point when he's using this example in chapter 10, are you trying to make God jealous? Don't you know, this makes God just I'll Which say, is I'll, Old Testament let me, language. Let me say it irreverently. It makes God go crazy. Right. I mean, you, you're going to make God's head explode. Which again, that should be a hyperlink for us because when we see language about God being jealous, that goes directly back to the Old Testament. And when Moses was dealing with the Israelites, yeah. Yeah. he is trying to draw the, your attention back to the examples he was trying to make yeah. there at the beginning to say, stop trying to go back to idolatry. Well, and again, remember the Corinthians, when they hear this letter for the first time, their understanding mm-hmm. is not the New Testament writings. Their understanding is Oh yeah, their Old scripture, Testament. which is the Old Testament. Yeah. Right. And so when he makes these, don't you know that God is jealous? Are you provoking the Lord to yeah. jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When he makes these kind of statements, they're immediately linked back to the Old Testament. That's, right. that's what they study and that's what they understand. That's right. One of the things I, I really like about these chapters that we're dealing with now, though, is Paul's fresh application. Yeah. I want to talk about that for just a minute yeah. before we end this podcast, because in the last part of chapter 10, Paul says, you know, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Yeah. And our modern versions have quoted these, have quotes around some of these phrases, and it really helps us mm-hmm. be able to distinguish between Paul's words and their, yeah. their words. And we've talked a little bit about the quotes and we've talked a little bit about 
quotation refutation mm-hmm. devices, and we'll we'll mention more of that as we go. Here, let, let's do this. We'll we'll do some role play. So uh, I'm going to be the church at Corinth in zero Corinthians, and David, you'll be my responder. You'll be the Apostle Paul. No problem. So, so they say everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. Now listen, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So just like you're saying, Bobby, the quotes really changed the whole thing. If you're just reading this and saying in Paul's voice, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It's so confusing without the quotes. Like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. Yeah. This really helps us a lot. And you can see Paul is refuting. He's contradicting their slogans, obviously, that they threw at him in the zero Corinthians letters. And, And so although Paul is telling them Again, don't connect the temple of God to idols. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the recurring theme. Yep. It's in the prostitute section, and it's again here in the meat offered to idols yep. section. Don't connect the temple of God to idols. But then in verse 27, he turns right around, or 25, 26, and 27. If you go buy some steaks down in the, in the local marketplace, just buy them, eat them, enjoy, grill them up, man. And, yep. and you know, do them right on the grill, invite some friends over and have a nice time. Don't think twice about it. That's a fresh application. That is. Yeah. And, and then in the next verse, he's like, if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner, listen, if you want to go, go. Why not? You know, if, if you have an unbelieving friend who says, hey, you know, steaks are on the grill. Come on over and we've got plenty. If you want to go over there and enjoy that meal with them, then you certainly have the liberty Absolutely. to go do that. Because again, idols, nothing. Meat is nothing. Correct. And nobody's made a big deal about where it came from. That's right. If the idol is not being brought to the foreground as the issue. It's just food and relationships. It's at just this point. food and fellowship. There That's you go. Right. And so just go and enjoy. Now, this is Paul taking both Old Testament yep. analogies, commands of Christ and the mm-hmm. early church, and freshly applying yes. them with wisdom and discernment to a present context. Yes. Now, this requires work yeah a lot of discernment right wisdom maybe some conversation Mm -hmm. with some spiritual parents maybe some elder conversations or or certainly in your life spiritual parent conversations where you say hey i've got a question about this let's talk it out yeah and these kind of conversations like we're having right now or where you could talk out specific issues and you could say well what does the bible say right i remember one of the first discipleship groups we had in our home Back in those days, we did little larger groups. And so there were several couples sitting at our kitchen table. They were young, for the most part, young couples in their 20s. And in one of our very first discipleship groups, we said, you know, things like, we're going to be here for you. We're going to answer your questions. We're going to be transparent. You know, we're going to open our lives. And, you know, nothing's off the table. You know, we want to build a relationship. Well, as soon as we started talking like that, they got liberty and they said, well, we've got questions and they started asking them right <laughs> immediate then. Regret, I mean, immediate, right? immediately <laughs> they started asking them. And so, yeah, maybe it was immediate regret. On our, but anyway, and the question they ask is, well, I've got a question about Christians and alcohol. Well, when one person said that out loud, three or four people snapped to attention in the room and said, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it was on. Everybody wanted to know in that moment about what, you know, what are the rules is kind of what it was, what are the rules about Christians and alcohol? And Susan and I said, well, okay, here's how we're going to deal with this with you. It's not about what are the rules or what do you say, Bobby, or what do you say, Susan, what are the principles in scripture? Mm -hmm. And so we asked them to let's open the Bible. 
and let's go find the references to wine and strong drink and let's just yep. look at them together and let's see what principles the Bible is discussing related to the topic of, you know, alcohol for God's people. And we did that together as a group and we talked about those and we applied those principles freshly to our context. Mm-hmm. Now, it's harder than having rules because it takes time and discernment. That's right. And it takes typically you need to have a conversation with somebody you might consider your spiritual parent. In other words, you're not going to go ask a bunch of people that are not spiritual people mm-hmm. how to discern and apply spiritual principles. Yeah. And so that re- requires you to be interactive and vulnerable and relational and all sure. these things. But this is what we're talking about. This is the way forward for Christianity now in a post-Christian America when we are faced with cultural contextual situations like Paul is dealing with in Mm -hmm. Corinth, specific situations to the context of Corinth, he makes fresh application of the principles of, of from the word of God. And again, the old Testament is his Bible at that Mm -hmm. point. And he sometimes says, as the Lord said, so he, even though that hadn't been published, right. Those teachings of Jesus are also in his heart and in his mind as, as they're doing this together. And they're freshly applying them to situations that may be similar or dissimilar. And this is our context. Some of our attitudes are similar to the Corinthians here in America today. Some of our context is very dissimilar, especially on the idolatry temple meat issue. So the, the point is, how do we apply the principles freshly to our own context. And Paul says, you know, if an unbeliever invites you over, he clearly, again, I was taught from my tradition, a thing, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, biblical separation. It came right. up at youth camp. It came up seminary. Yeah. It came up in pastor's conference. What do you mean practicing biblical separation? Well, they defined biblical separation as Christians should not in any way interact with the lost world. Yeah. And, and I'm just, you're just sitting here as a Christian saying, okay, I want to believe in what you're saying, but it doesn't sound like what I'm reading in the pages of the New yeah. Testament. What do you do with 1 Corinthians 10, 27? If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, go without questions for the sake of conscience. <laughs> yeah. It, it seems to me that this is the practice of Jesus. Yeah. What you're reading here, yeah. Yeah. he's being criticized for eating with air quotes sinners. Yeah. That seems to be his crowd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that... You know, he hangs out with the disciples and, and yeah, yeah, but he also hangs out with what we would call the, what community called sinners. Yeah. And he built relations with, and he consequently transformed their lives to be believers in him as yeah. the Messiah. And, you know, Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, I mean, the list is long and distinguished of people whose hearts he won for the kingdom of God because he was relational and because he would go and eat with them or mm-hmm. interact with them. Well, and all this friendship. conversation of the, the do we or don't we, or my conscience says this, or my conscience says that it's all culminated in really the thesis statement of this chapter where he says, whatever you eat or drink, or really whatever you do, yeah. do it for the glory of God. And I think that's exactly the, the most applicative point. Even today, yeah. we look at it and we, we say, okay, well, maybe we're not quite dealing with you know, eating meat offered to idols from the, from the temple. So what should we do with that? We don't really deal with that in our context, but we do gain an understanding and discernment of how to interpret these kind of situations and filter it through the lens and purpose of does this bring glory to God? 
I like that you're talking about fresh and flexible application. And maybe I didn't say flexible enough, but it clearly is flexible. Yeah. Clearly is flexible. Yeah. And that's why he nuances his point there at the end of chapter 10, because he, yeah, he said, don't eat the idol meat, but then he, but, but then very clearly, but here's what you can do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't go in the temple of, but here's what you can do. He gives you two situations in which booth 37 down on fourth street sells fantastic ribeyes that came right out of Aphrodite's, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I mean, he's just essentially saying ask. that. Just, just don't, don't ask. ask. No questions. Don't That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so clearly there, there is a, a heavy emphasis on how we're going to apply, again, this new covenant ethic of love kind of thing that's happening here. Because again, the letter of the law binds. It kills, it kills I think, even It actually. kills what the spirit gives life. But the spirit gives life. And I, I just want to point out one of those moments where it happens in chapter nine, because I didn't have a chance to get to this at the sermon. It just wasn't a, a part of the, the time frame there. But this is really important to me. Paul says in chapter nine, verse nine, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Now he's about to apply that law in a fresh and flexible way. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. The whole point of this thing going back to chapter nine is that Paul can demand the right of payment for his ministry. Correct. Because he is like the oxen in this particular passage here that he's referring to in the law of Moses. He's saying you shouldn't muzzle an ox in the same way you should allow the benefit of the field to go to the oxen. The same way that I'm benefiting from you guys, I I can take this pay. Absolutely. Now, if we were to say that the law is binding for us, if if we're saying we are Israel and the law is binding to us, then we would have to say that this law right here, the way that Paul applies it, goes in, I mean, that's a that's a contradiction. We'd have to say that what Paul's doing here goes against what the law says. Because he's reapplying it. Because he's reapplying it in a fresh and flexible way. And I think that is the point. It's because Jesus fulfilled the law. And so now we're talking about the heart and the intention of the law, the spirit of the law, if you would, not about the letter of the law. So Paul sees wisdom in the law. He sees a way to know about God's character. He sees a way to discern more about who God is and how then we can apply those things to our lives rather than saying, here's the hard and fast rule that you must follow. And he does that all the way again through into chapter 10. I think that's really important for us to grasp and understand because if Paul uses the law this way, then we in like kind should look at the new covenant ethic of love, which is the new law, and we should freshly and flexibly apply that to where we're at. I love that. I love this conversation. This week, Pastor Bobby is going to go into chapter 15. We're going to kind of start skipping around. Actually, the pacing of the next several weeks is about to get really fun because there's some really misunderstood chapters coming up. I would say the chapters that are coming up, 11, mm-hmm. 12 spiritual gifts. Yep. 11 is about men and women interacting in the congregation, head coverings. Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper. 12 is spiritual gifts and tongues. 14 is let the women keep silence in the church. You're about to be faced with post-Easter. Now, Easter, obviously, we're going to talk about the resurrection on Sunday in chapter 15. We'll podcast heavily 15 next week because I want to make sure that Easter is designed for a little more of a... It's an evangelistic approach, yeah. Yeah, and it's not going to be our typical cornerstone crowd on a Sunday. It'll be some guests and visitors. I want to make that fresh for them. But we'll podcast a lot of 15 in more detail. 
But I want to say to those who are listening right now, buckle your seatbelt because post Easter, those weeks after Easter, you're, you're about to deal with three of what I think are the most controversial chapters in the entire canon of scripture. It's one of the reasons why we even chose to start studying for Corinthians were the next few chapters. And so you'll definitely want to be reading those and thinking about those and prepping your questions. Mm -hmm. And we're going to deal with some of those in sermon format, possibly a round table format, back to a sermon format. Anyway, we're going to cover the material as best we can, but yeah, Th- this should be very intriguing what's coming. Definitely. And as you're doing your own personal study, as you listen to these podcasts, we want you to be engaged in the conversation as well. So as you read and as you study, if something comes up and you say, wow, this just doesn't fit in line with my understanding of scripture, or I'd like some further clarification on this, or I just completely disagree with what you said, <laughs> whatever it is, we want to hear it. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to be able to respond to them, just like you saw us do today. So if you would text your comments and feedback to 817-809-3040, we'd love to hear from you. Again, we are just so privileged and honored that you guys are even listening and that this has become a wonderful asset and tool to you as you study the book of 1 Corinthians. We can't wait to engage even further. Tune in next week as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 15.